Well, good morning, everyone. Okay, that's very quiet. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Good, good. I always like to know that everybody's at least awake at the start. Uh, and as we keep going, uh, we trust that the Lord will add His blessing to, uh, to the, the words that we're going to be considering this morning. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, greetings from the east side of the city, uh, from Greenwood Gospel Chapel. We're in the East York area, and we've been in Toronto for about 10 years now and uh, in fellowship there at Greenwood, and it's, uh, it is a privilege to be here this morning and uh, to actually reacquaint with uh, people that we've known from, uh, from the past. Uh, I think, uh, as I was reminded, uh, the last time I saw Joshua, he was much shorter uh, and uh, much younger at that time. So it is great to, to see young people that are growing and growing in the faith and becoming involved with the, uh, the Lord's work. So it is good to be here. Before we uh, go any further, maybe we'll take a time to uh, just open in a word of prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing this morning. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we've been able to gather this morning uh, here uh, with God's people and to, uh, to have an opportunity, as we did this morning, to uh, remember the Lord Jesus and what He has done for us and to reflect upon that uh, amazing work uh, at the cross of Calvary uh, where He suffered, He bled, He died for us. We lo Lord, we also thank you for, for the freedoms we have in this country to open your word, to be able to be challenged and encouraged and to be strengthened in our walk with you. And we trust that this morning that uh, as we open your word, uh, that, uh, that you would uh, enable us to hear your voice uh, through the human voices that are speaking and that uh, we would consider what you would have us to do in our daily lives, that we would be prepared uh, to speak about the hope that is within us. We pray that as we look into this world, we realize that it is a world that is uh, tragically without hope and uh, certainly without any sense of assurance. And here we have the opportunity to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the answer of all things. And so, Lord, we thank you this morning that we are able to gather together. We pray that we would be strengthened as we do so. And we pray that the words that are spoken would be from you. And we pray that you lead and guide our thoughts this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So thank you again for the opportunity, and, uh, and Vigi mentioned that uh, as, uh, as we were interacting uh, electronically about uh, some of the things that you are considering uh, over the, the last couple of weeks, and uh, you have a very robust website, so I was actually able to go and see some of the, the topics that have been covered, but there's been a, a, in the last couple of weeks, looking at ethics and looking at morality and realizing that we have a, a place as believers uh, in this world uh, and we'll consider some of these things that we're to be, uh, but really realizing that uh, we're, in a, we're in a society in which there is tension uh, continuously. And uh, this morning, uh, because of my, my interest, my background, uh, Viji uh, had asked if I could uh, relate uh, some of these thoughts and uh, I thought I would uh, put it in the context of society, medicine, ethics, and scripture. It's a lot of sort of points to, to pull together, but the reality is all of these things are in tension uh, with what is happening and what people choose and what people do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, the reality is that our society is changing. As we look around us, it is very different. 
Uh, if, you, uh, put, if you were to put yourself in a time machine and go back 20 years ago uh, and looked at the, even just the geography of these places, some of these places wouldn't exist. So th there's a physical side to things, but then the physical, the, the, the changes are not just in the fact that there are new buildings, but there are people that are in these places. And I think one of the things that we have a tendency to do is to say, you know, those good old days back then, right? Uh, we always do this. We always say things were better back then. Remember when, you know, something costs a nickel. You know, those, those are the things that we often latch onto. Why? Because those are memories. Those are things that we have positively associated with. We've held on to them, and they, they as, as kids would say, they have a warm, fuzzy feeling within us, right? But the problem is, you know, nostalgia is good. It's good to be reflective uh, on the past, but we only tend to remember the good. We tend to forget the bad stuff in general. And so we have a very skewed impression of what it was in the good old days. The good old days, really, people died. People died from all the things that we now commonly would say people are living in just in the, in the field of medicine. Uh, when, we think about, uh, when we think about the hardships of how it was to work in the old days, uh, people had to toil in the earth. Uh, you know, I came from Manitoba, and farmers out there literally had to have a hoe and a, and a horse, and they were plowing the fields by hand. Nowadays, they can just jump into a $150,000 piece of equipment and drive, and they've got GPS, and they've got music, and they've got air conditioning in these tractors. And that's just farming. Uh, life in general has changed. Yes, there have been good things, but we tend to forget all the bad things that have happened. The other thing that seems to be happening is that there seems to be a shift in terms of what's acceptable and what's un unacceptable. Things that in times past we would have said clearly are unacceptable, people are willing to say, eh, you know, maybe. Or maybe they're even saying, yes, that, that's totally fine. And we're hearing that debate even in our society about, about certain things like marijuana and other, other things that we would have clearly said 20 years ago would have been, you know, what are you doing? What are you talking about? We don't talk about those type of things. Uh, and those who were involved with those type of things would have been clearly in a specific uh, camp. But that's blurred. That's blurring. Uh, the question is, where do we stand? Where do we hold ourselves to? And part of this is that I think we do make assumptions as believers about where we live. It was interesting a couple of years ago, and uh, Greenwood, where we're situated, is in East York. So, you know, we're about 10 minutes away from downtown. We can see downtown. We can experience all the things there. And at that time, you know, 20 years ago, a number of the believers lived actually within five minutes away from the church. It was a, truly a community church. But then over time, people migrated away, and uh, their impressions of the community around Greenwood was trapped in time, as it were. It was fascinating because when we went and started doing some door-to-door -door work with these believers, they couldn't believe who they were seeing on the door. Now, it's kind of funny for me because we live in that community five minutes away, so we have a real good sense of who lives in the community, but our, our brothers and sisters who had moved away uh, but still were in fellowship at this assembly hadn't caught up to the fact that the demographics alone had shifted. It was much younger. 
it was clearly a situation in which there were a lot of visible minorities in this community. A lot of people who never spoke English. When we asked the question, do you have a Bible? Most of the homes said, we don't have a Bible. Right? And most of the homes that we went to, there was a very strong uh, Muslim presence because of a number of the mosques that had come into the community. So you, you, you can realize that you make assumptions, you think that a community is one way, but it has shifted even while you're actively involved, supposedly, within that community. So one of the other assumptions that we make is that Canada is a Christian country. And I think we often, and we, certainly down in the States, you, you've been hearing this rhetoric recently, you know, there's a nation founded on God and the principles of the Bible. I think that's another thing that we hear up here in Canada, is that Canada is a Christian country. But I want you to actually have a bit of a reality check. Think historically, and if you were to actually look these numbers up, how many were actually considered Christian, or how many would be considered evangelical? And those numbers are far sm smaller than you would actually think. Now, the reality is, what about now? What are the shifting demographics that are happening around our communities right now? How many are Christian? How many would consider themselves to be evangelical, Bible-believing uh, Christians? I always look at uh, where assemblies are located. I find that fascinating. Uh, that, that is often a picture of where the influences are in our community. How many people have been exposed to biblical teaching? As I mentioned, when we went and asked people on the doors, how many of you even have a Bible? We were hearing from a, a, a lot of people that they didn't even have a Bible. We ran out of Bibles to give because we didn't think that that would be the need. But there were people who didn't have Bibles. How many have even opened and read a Bible, even if they had a Bible, and they may actually associate themselves with being culturally considered a Christian? How many of them would have actually opened that Bible that they actually have in their possession? So here's my first assumption. Canada is a Christian country, but my, my, my tale to you is that we need to know our community. And this is important when we look at the ethics and when we look at the, the shifts in medicine. So let's just do a quick snapshot. This is 2001 data. So this is a bit dated, but I, I don't think it's too far off. But if you can look, the red bar, uh, you have a pointer? The red uh, part of the pie chart, 35%, this is Ontario data from 2001, would call themselves on the census Protestant. But if you look, there's about 16% that say that they have no religious affiliation at all. This is Ontario-wide. So taking into account urbanized centers like we have in Mississauga, Toronto, but also some very remote communities. What about the city of Toronto? Now, I know we're in Mississauga, but I couldn't find Mississauga data, so I apologize. But this, this would probably hold very much true for you because we're, we're essentially neighbors. Uh, splitting across a highway. So what would Toronto look like? It's a very different picture, and I would argue that it's increasingly shifting. And this is from 2011, so it's a little bit more recent, but only 12% would call themselves Protestant in that category, and that's a pretty broad category still. No affiliation, it's gone up to 24%. 
But if you look at the, the spread of other religious groups, including Aboriginal and other uh, denominations or groups that would consider themselves to be Christian, it's quite a spread. So the reality is that our community is very diverse. Don't make the assumption that people even have a Bible, and if they have a Bible, that they've even opened it, that they've read through one entire book, let alone the entire Bible. So this is who we are amongst. This is our community. This is where we live. This is where we work. This is where our children go to school. This is where the Lord has placed us. So, here's a second assumption. The government is forcing things on us. And you hear that those are great when it comes to sound bites for the media, for the TV uh, reporters, you know, that there's always a sense of outrage about whatever topic it is that is being discussed. The government is forcing things on us. So I'm going to comment and say, first of all, let's do a bit of a reality check on that that concept. The government in our Canadian society, what is the role of the government? And oftentimes the government people will say, well, it's the, it's the legal side of the system that's really skewing. What's the role of our judiciary in our community? How do they shape what is happening? And the reality is both of these arms are trying to be reflections of society. And the reason is because they know that if they don't, they are not going to retain their positions, positions and power. This is the reality of what we see on both the judiciary and both on the, on the, uh, on the pol- political side of the spectrum. It doesn't matter what party you're in, they're all looking to stay in power. They all want jobs, they want to stay and keep those jobs. That's a pragmatic answer. The judiciary is simply trying to interpret the laws of the land that we do have. Maybe they are based in in historical truths that may have been derived from the Bible, but they're still interpreting them, trying to reflect the direction of society. So when you're upset with that judge or that politician that is saying something, keep in mind that they are a reflection of the community that we considered a couple of slides ago is very different than what we often think about. So, our communities are changing, they're different. There's certainly a lack of biblical literacy amongst the community. I guess the question is, do we have a literacy problem amongst believers as well? Certainly a diminishing knowledge about the Bible. And the question I have is, just based on percentages, we see a diminishing influence of believers as well. So we can, we've considered some of the assumptions that are there, and these are just the assumptions I wanted to consider for this morning. But now we can make a bit of a shift because medicine is the other area that we wanted to consider this morning. And this is another area that's completely changing. Uh, the stuff that I studied back when I was a, a student, uh, totally irrelevant. I'm, when I go back home uh, to Winnipeg in uh, April, I am basically pulling a big garbage bin out Uh, Well, actually, it's a recycling bin. This is all paper. Uh, And I'm just going to be throwing all this stuff out. Why? Because medicine has changed. Certainly, our understanding of basic, you know, principles such as, you know, how does a heart work and how does your lungs and all these things hasn't changed. But none of the things I learned about how to manage 
uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago applies today. It's changed. And that's kind of a remarkable thing because there are people alive today that 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago would not be alive because of the advances that we've seen. But with those advances, there are pressures. There are tensions that are happening as a result of this uh, because we don't have infinite resources when we, come, when we think about all these things. So what do we have? We have, a, we have a, an aging population. The population is aging. It is getting older. And people have uh, a, an expectation uh, and certainly a desire to live longer. They want to be 120, uh, you know, and keep going as if they were 20. Now, there are some realities that we have to think about. I think living well or living with a good quality of life is a very different discussion than living in perpetuity, especially when you drill down to the reason for why people say this, and we'll get to that. There are evolving expectations as to what people are looking for. There's growing demand. I work in a hospital. That's all we see. More expectations, more demands. Do more with less. Uh, we don't want to pay more taxes, so you're going to have to figure it out. This is the system that we live in, and the caregivers, such as myself and my colleagues, my counterparts in the hospital and in clinics around the city, they're pressed with this. They're stressed. They're burning out because we don't know how to deal with this tension that's coming to them, and it's being imposed. So now we're getting to the point where caregivers need to be care receivers, and that's not in the intention, because most of us, when we're sick, we want to go somewhere, we want to get somebody who's healthy that's going to be able to look after us. I would suggest that we're facing a growing crisis amongst our healthcare professionals, and some of this is because of where and what their faith is in and what they put their trust in, that they're burning out. They're burning out. Rising costs, call for compassion, these are all things that are happening around us. So, as we consider this, we're also wrestling with ethics on the other side. Things like dignity, which is very good. These are things that we need to be considering. The dignity of the individual. The need to foster trust and care. But as well, think about justice. And I was very fortunate when I was training, I had the opportunity to go up north uh, and when you go up north, you only have to be up there a very short period of time to realize that there's not a lot of justice and certainly not a lot of equity when it comes to almost anything that we consider. Whether it was water, whether it was education, whether it was health, housing, it didn't matter what it was, you didn't see it. And that's in our own developed country called Canada. We don't have to travel, and I tell students this all the time, you don't have to travel to a faraway country to see poverty to see what it has the impact on, on a family, on the well-being of health, and certainly on the spiritual side, you see that impact as well. All of these things are tensions that are happening between medicine, between ethics, between a community that's shifting and growing. And our societal expectations, as you can see, they're shifting as well. And a lot of it is happening at the end of life. I don't know if you've seen these numbers before, but this is staggering. $5 billion spent in the last year of life. That's 10% of the healthcare budget for people in the last year of life. If you look at the last month of life, it's $1.3 billion. Astounding. And this is in a time period where people like me would look in on this 
individual, this patient, this loved one, and say, I know I'm not going to change the trajectory of this individual's life. I know that the end is coming. The question is, what are we going to do? And how are we going to help them? So this leads to a lot of hot topics. And one of the most recent ones that you'll hear and you're probably hearing about and seeing about in the media is this whole area of physician-assisted death. And this is putting a lot of tension on Christian physicians and Christian healthcare providers. People who have a very clear sense of what their role and responsibility is based on their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and their responsibility to the sanctity of life. These are tensions that we are being placed under. So the question is, when we look at this, this is, these are people that are, the patients that are advocating that a, a physician would intentionally, knowingly provide that person with knowledge or means or he actually aid and abet the actual act of ending that individual's life. Imagine being a stressed caregiver in that situation and now being pr- placed under this pressure, an additional pressure on the individual, but now it's actually getting to the heart of the individual, to the moral, the ethics, the, the, the spiritual side of the individual. This is not just a unique thing happening in Canada. In the States, this is happening. There are a number of states that have these purposeful laws, and actually there's a growing number of states that are looking at having these laws in place. And so what's happening in Canada? Well, our Supreme Court has basically said that if you fit into one of these categories, a competent adult person clearly consents, you have a grievous or irremediable uh, medical condition which causes enduring suffering that is intolerable to the individual, then you could proceed down this pathway of medically assisted, uh, medical assistance in dying. Once again, that's putting a lot of pressure on especially those uh, Christian healthcare providers, physicians and nurses and others who are facing this dilemma. And so the question is, how should a physician or anyone else in the healthcare field whose religious beliefs, and this is even broader than Christians, because this was a poll question that was asked, anyone who's, who's got a religious belief that would forbid them from for referring for euthanasia be required to act when a patient requests the procedure. And so, this was a poll, Canadians, that were asked. This is what they said. 14% said they must perform it. Must. No choice given to the individual care provider at that time. Even if they chose to uh, be uh, opposed to it for personal or religious or other reasons. 28% said You don't have to do it, but you have to refer to someone who will, which is equally problematic for a person who says this is not the way to go based on scriptures, based on for others from other religious faiths for their reasons as well. Fortunately, we still have about 58% that says you shouldn't be pressured to either refer or to do it. But I'm still concerned that that percentage that you see in the green and the red is is quite significant, and it'll likely shift over time as most things do. So this is, this is our tension. How do we protect the conscience of care providers in these communities? How do we protect the conscience of loved ones who might be opposed to their father, their mother, their loved one that might be pursuing this course of action? 
And I think there are concerns that uh, other organizations have raised, and I think I'll just move ahead to, to this, is that we have a worry that it may have a risk for those who are weak and vulnerable. We know that the provisions of the, the way things are stipulated by the Supreme Court are very specific, but there is a tension that maybe this is the slippery slope. What about that relationship between the doctor and the patient, the physician and the patient. Historically, that would have been the that would have been a what some people might say a sacrosanct relationship. There is a lot of openness, a lot of trust, a lot of uh, relationship building that occurs. There are things that are said within those walls that you might not even say to a loved one. And what happens when this issue comes into place? Does that taint that? Does that impact that? relationship. What about families? Families in which there may be generational differences or even within the same generation there may be differences in how people want to proceed. There's a risk to this as well. And certainly the concern about dignity and equality. And I, I think for me this is quite odd because when I graduated from medical school this is one of the things I was asked to say the Hippocratic Oath. And it's fairly clear as to what we would do. I will keep the sick from harm and injustice. I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody who asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. This is something that I swore to. I, 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 I said this oath when I graduated. Actually, I said it even before I went into medical school. We have a ceremony in which it's a welcome to the profession, and we all said this. So does this mean that this is not applicable? What about for all those who actually sincerely thought that this was the profession that they entered? What does that happen? So clearly, we have opposing views. We have tensions, again, that are coming into our communities, into our workplaces, uh, between people who would have been colleagues uh, all of these things are happening, and it, it's becoming a my way, your way kind of a scenario, uh, which, which makes it challenging. Now, there are very many alternatives as well, and I think one of the things that I've been really heartened to see is that a lot of Christian healthcare providers are really trying to focus their effort on what we would call our palliative care system. How do we provide care for those as an alternative to what people are looking for. So, palliative care. What, what does palliative mean, actually? And it means to make you know, a disease or its symptoms less severe and, or unpleasant or with, without removing the cause. How many of you have taken Tylenol before? Not very many people, so McNeil as a company is not doing very well. Uh, let me ask that again. How many of you have taken Tylenol? or have seen somebody take Tylenol. What is Tylenol, right? Tylenol is simply to make people feel better. It doesn't actually take the root cause of the problem away, right? If you've got a, we've had children like this uh, that are unwell, you give them Tylenol, their fever goes away, but the actual underlying problem doesn't go away. The infection doesn't go away until the antibiotics are given. So we do this all the time. We, we aim to palliate because we aim to, aim to relieve. How many of you have had a massage for uh, a sore shoulder or a neck? 
How many of you have taken uh, A535 or something else? These are all measures that we use commonly to palliate or to relieve the symptoms that we do have. So I think one of the tensions that we have in the healthcare field is that when we say palliative, people think you're about to die. Like this person is imminently about to pass on. And, and the conversations we have with patients and families and loved ones becomes very skewed because they have this, they have a stereotype in their mind, they have a myth in their mind, they've made assumptions that are all incorrect. The reality is we do this every day, there's not a lot of things, and I'm saying something as a doctor that many of you might be surprised, there are not a lot of things that we actually cure, right? Inevitably, if you have diabetes, you will still have diabetes. We just manage it. We palliate you by giving you medications. If you've got high blood pressure, if you stop taking your high blood pressure medication, you'll still have high blood pressure. You'll just have complications from it because you haven't taken your medication. So the reality is we don't get rid of a lot of things in, in, in medicine. Uh, we basically manage one of the things that we need to realize is that our conversations with patients, and some of this will be you, and I'm putting you into the position because as believers, you have a, a unique lens and you will be called upon to interact with people who are suffering, right? How many of us know someone who is afflicted physically or otherwise, physically, mentally, spiritually? Are they, are they drawing upon us? Are they calling upon us? And oftentimes they're looking for something to palliate, something to take away the suffering. What do we have to offer? Maybe it is Tylenol, but do we have something else for the other things that they're suffering with? So this is leading to other hot topics that you'll see in, in, in the literature, in the media, that are all points of discussion. How many of you have heard of the tension of the fact that we don't have enough resources and who needs to get the resources, right? Weightless, that's the classic example. It took me six months to get my MRI or my hip replaced, it took three years to do that, right? This is the tension between who needs it and who would like to have it but may not need it imminently. This is the tension. Stem cell research, is this something that people have heard about? Right. These, I, I'm not, I shouldn't be telling you anything that you don't know. These are things that are in our popular culture, our popular media. We're hearing this. I'm asking you as believers, what do you actually think about these things? How will you respond? Or will you just sort of sit back and let the conversation go along and you'll just be sort of a fly on the wall? Or do you have an opportunity to shift the conversation? The reality is when you look at any of these things, these topics that I put up there, what is the common theme? What is the common theme? I'd suggest it's actually two things. One is S. Fear of death. Fear of the flat line of life. A time in which people don't know what actually lies beyond in our community. Right? I think people are and we see this all the time. I walk into rooms and you tell them a diagnosis and this is one of the things that they're terrified about is what will happen, when will it happen, how will it happen. And actually the how it will happen goes into this, the fear of dying. So death is a finite point in time. You're either alive or you're dead. 
Dying, however, is a process. For some, it's, it's prolonged. If you've got a chronic illness or you've been battling cancer for a long period of time, this is, could be a long period of time. It could be years. Or it could be short. If it is a tragic accident or some other unfortunate circumstance. But people are afraid of what will happen during this period of time. How much pain will I have? How much suffering will I have? How much awareness will I have of what's happening to my physical body? These are the things that are actually underpinning those hot topics that I mentioned. And so what does this mean for us as Christians? What does this mean? And I think one of the challenges is that, yes, we're all busy. I'll put that right on the table. We're all busy. Life is busy. We have to go to work. We have kids to raise. We have other uh, responsibilities and roles that we play. And one of the challenges is that we don't often take enough time to actually understand the issue. And when I say understand the issue, it's not sitting and listening to somebody else talk about the issue, but go and dig for yourself, right? When, uh, when Paul would speak to the believers in Berea, he would speak to them. But he then challenged them to go back and look for themselves. And that was Scripture. Now, how many times do we do that when it comes to what we're hearing? Or do we simply, you know, we listen to something on the radio or a podcast or something else, and that's enough to satisfy our knowledge for that topic? I'd suggest that's not good enough because the people that you're going to be interacting with, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, they're way more savvy than that. And that's not good enough of, a, uh, of an explanation for them when it comes to uh, these points. And it's partly because all you hear when you do listen is just emotion. People are just angry. They're, they're, remember, the government is forcing this on us. They, they've got a lot of passion, but when you drill down or you pull away all that emotion, are you left with something that could actually have a conversation with so that you could actually convince someone of what you believe and why you believe it. Remember, what community do we live in? Do we live in a community in which we are surrounded 24-7 by Bible-believing, Bible-reading individuals? Or are we in a community that is very different than that? And so we need to be careful. We, we have to be cautious of the assumptions that we make. Take time at, at a lunch hour when you're at your workplace. Just look and see who is actually at the table in the lunchroom, in the cafeteria. Who are the people that you have been placed purposefully by the Lord to be an example in that place? Who are the people that are looking at you? I think this is even more important when we think about our young people, and it's encouraging to see so many here today. How do we engage young people with these controversial topics? Because our young people are going to university, going to college, they're going to high school, and they're facing teachers and others, and even classmates, peers, that are telling them one way. And they use big words, they use fancy words that often talk about equality and equity and uh, diversity of thought and all of these things, but how do you encourage your 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 believers, the children, the young people, to know why they're believing and how they believe it and how they can actually enunciate, how can they actually speak about 
what is the hope that is within them in those circumstances? How do we prepare our young people? How do we prepare our more mature people? Right? Sometimes I think we're more careful uh, and more hesitant to engage in those conversations uh, with, with God's Word because we don't know how it's going to be received or we may not feel as comfortable. How do we prepare ourselves as good soldiers with the Word of the truth with our, in our hands and ready to, to speak? How do we do that? Our family, our friends. This might be even harder because these are people you've already have a relationship. Family is family. That's true. But friends, you know, the, you, you've built up, you know, rapport, a relationship. How do you engage them on these topics in a loving and gracious and merciful way, being sensitive to who they are but not shying away from the truth? That's the reality. Our neighbors, coworkers. And I think we need to do better than this old adage, which is, because I said so. Now, as a parent, I'm starting to use that, sadly, with my two-year-old, because I said so. You can't do that. You can't, you know, open the washing machine. You can't do this. There are certain things. But, you know, try and engage a 20-year-old with that comment, with that phrase. Will that resonate? Will that impact them? Will that cause them to say, you know what, this person actually wants to engage with me in a conversation? and respects my, my autonomy, my intelligence, and what I know, and is bringing something to, to me to engage. Engage the mind, right? We get, to, we get to them. And I think this is the problem, is that a lot of Christians, you know, we're the one that's on the right, the Christians, and everybody else is on the left. And that's how they perceive us. We may not be doing that, but that's the perception. And so we have to overcome that perception with something that's very different. Lovingly opening God's Word, sharing the truth of the gospel, sharing the truth that is contained therein, and engaging people's hearts and minds. When, you, when engaging someone, it's more important for them to know why you believe rather than just what you believe. This is the reality. So, Brother Joshua read these verses for us, and I'd like to remind ourselves, and this is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 17 to 17. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with, what does it say there? Gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. How we respond will determine are we going to have a second conversation with that person? Right? Are we going to have more time? I know we say now is the appointed time, now is the acceptable time to accept, but you know, sometimes the Lord is gracious and allows us many opportunities to engage people. And over time, you see hearts softening, hearts changing, minds looking and considering things differently. Remember, these are not people who have grown up with the Bible and have grown up with an understanding that we have and we have been blessed with. So we need to think differently. I'd suggest we need to think about engagement, not buy-in. Buy-in is, and my apologies if there's anybody who sells cars, but a used car salesman will come to you and wants you to buy the car. 
They don't care what shape the car is and they don't care what your need is. They just want you to buy the car. Engagement is, what are you looking for, sir? What are you wanting? What are your needs? How can I meet them? How can I help you understand what, what, what we have to offer? It's a very different approach. And if we do things when it comes to things of the Lord in that kind of, con- uh, in that kind of a mindset, we actually drill much deeper into their hearts and into their minds because we've engaged them, we've hooked them with something that now they cannot let go. And it becomes theirs. It becomes theirs to own and theirs to communicate. Some of the most passionate people that I've ever seen being able to uh, share their, uh, their testimony are those who this is exactly what's happened. Over time, the Lord has been working in their heart and loved ones have been working sharing diligently, demonstrating the love of Christ as well, not just speaking about the love of Christ, but demonstrating it through how and how, how they interact with them. And it has a much more powerful experience. Now, the reality is, this is the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13. Let's just read these verses. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. I think this, these, this parable uh, 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 reminds us that we will not always see the, the harvest that we often desire. And we just don't know who is in our midst. Now, we, we do our best to till the soil to get as many of the weeds out as possible to remove the rocks as much as we can. But in the end, when we sow the seed, and that's our responsibility, is to sow the seed, it is out of our control at that point, right? The Holy Spirit works in the lives of those individuals. Others will come and potentially water, and others may sow, uh, reap the, the, the harvest. That's what we see in Scriptures, and that's the reality of our lives. So sometimes you might say, you know, I've been in that workplace for, you know, 10 years and I haven't seen any fruit. But maybe that was not for you to see. Ours was simply to sow the seed, to be faithful in that conduct that the Lord has asked us to do. That commandment, to go and tell. So I'm going to ask, can you articulate why you think what you think? Can you clearly do that? And then, as we think about things moving forward, where do we draw the line? What biblical principles should we consider when we're having these discussions with our friends, our loved ones, our colleagues, others who are wanting to engage us? What is the context that we find ourselves in today? And how are we to conduct ourselves as Christians? And the following will be very self-evident and maybe should be serving as reminders for us, right? As Christians, we're to be light. We're to be light because there is a lot of darkness in this world. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul's desire was that he would see the believers shining amongst the people. And I think it's more evident when you've been out in a dark place. I don't know how many of you have been out into a very dark place. It's hard in their cities. But if you've been to a place out in the woods, in the wilderness, and you look up and you see nothing, it's just darkness, all you need is one light. And it's amazing how bright it shines. But if I was to take the same light and shine it up here, you would, it'd be sort of lost. It'd be diffused out. Uh, if you were to take it out in a sunny day, it would be, it would be uh, unperceptible. But in the darkness of the physical world, a single light no matter how many lumens it has, is seen as a bright spot. Now, our lives as believers, how is that a reflection in our our communities? Our communities we've seen, they're dark places. There's a lot lot of things that are happening that maybe we don't even know about. But imagine being that light in that community. Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. Our job is to point others towards God. But we're also supposed to be light. Uh, In in addition to light, we're to be salt as well. And salt has a very different character, right? Too much salt and it makes things unpalatable. But just the right amount. And you have an amazing addition to whatever is being put together. You are salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will it be salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And I think for me, as a physician, salt does two things. One is from a food point of view, it makes things taste better. And certainly patients, it, it, it makes things more appealing for them to eat. But the other thing is, uh, what does salt do? Is it drives your thirst. And that's something that God has hardwired into us, uh, into our bodies, that having salt and having too much of it throws off the balance. You crave water. And that's an amazing thing. Drive that thirst for, uh, for the, the living water, the, the Word, the, the Lord Jesus Himself. And if we're salt, our, our job is not to draw people to ourselves, right? Our job is to draw people to Him. Him, He who did all that He did on the cross of Calvary for us, who accomplished everything. That is who we're drawing people towards, not towards ourselves. And this fits in with the concept of us being ambassadors. Ambassadors are representatives in countries. And we're going through a very interesting time in which now uh, the American ambassador to Canada essentially is now unemployed. Why? Because, and, and right across the world, that seems to have happened. Why? Because these current amba- or these former ambassadors don't reflect the current administration in the United States. They're not representatives. They were representatives of the previous president and his administration. So the ambassador plays a really important role. The ambassador also is not to draw attention to themselves, but to draw attention to the person that they're representing. And that's the role of an ambassador. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. As though God were making his appeal through us, 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are representing the Most High God. We're not just representing a human, a physical individual who uh, has very, you know, much faults and, and weaknesses. We're, we're representatives of the Most High God. How privileged are we? But the other thing that we need to consider is that the job of the ambassador is not like any other job. It's not a nine-to-five job. It's not a weekends-off kind of situation. It's a 24-7, 365 days of the year position. It's who you are. I tell students this as well, especially those who are wanting to go into medicine. I say there's no such thing as off the clock and on the clock. You know, you're a physician, you're always a physician. Irrespective of where you are, where you end up, people have expectations, right? Um, and, and it happens in, in real life. And it's active. It's an active service. It is not passive. The final thing that I wanted to consider this afternoon is that Christians are fire starters. Now, you know, not from a, an illegal, you know, arson kind of mentality. Um, but what is our role in getting a conversation going? Getting people thinking. This is a society in which people don't want to think, right? If you can put it into a tweet, which is 140 characters, that's enough to satisfy people, right? If you can post it on Facebook with a quick video, that's good enough. But have a, a heart-to-heart, sit-down conversation with somebody, that's painful for most people. It's a, it's a, unfortunately, it's become a lost art to have a conversation with people. People are more content with their technology. You could actually be at dinner with people and they have their phones out. They're more content with that. So my, 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 my desire is, what is, what is our role as Christians to engage people on those discussions? And we can use anything that is around us. We can start from where people are, but it requires us to know who we're talking to, which comes back to knowing your community. Yes, we're dealing with a community and people who have a lack of biblical literacy, but you know what? God has given us the best opening introduction to any conversation. He's given us creation. And it's amazing what you can have a conversation with as you're walking with someone. Looking up, looking at God's beauty. They may see something else, but it is our job to draw their attention to who God is and to what God has for them. And so God has even allowed us with this never-failing storybook for Him to be conveyed to people around us. Most of the time, people don't even have a clue. They'll look out, they'll see the grayness of the, of the skies outside, they'll see sort of the barren nature of the tree, but that in itself is a story of people. But we also know that the seasons, we're going to be heading into spring eventually, and those trees that look barren right now will spring to life. Each of these things in creation are a representation of who God is and allow for all things to be drawn back to Him and to His Son. How do we know and are we ready to be aware of what is happening around us? Do we take the time to engage our loved ones? So Vigi asked me to leave some thoughts for you to re- reflect on the, or questions 
but I'm just going to leave you with some thoughts. These are, this is homework for you. This is homework for me because I think I need to do this better in the circles that I find myself. I need to know my context. Where have I been placed? The Lord has uniquely placed each of us in a specific place. You do not work in the same place that I work. If you're in school, you go to a very unique school. You're in a unique class. You have a unique circle of people that you interact with. Your community, your neighbors, those are all uniquely placed by God to allow you as His ambassador, as His light, as His salt, as His fire starter to get people thinking about Him. Are we knowing our community and our context? Are we ready to engage people? And I, you know, like I said, there are p- ways people engage people, some that are very inflammatory and very vigorous, and you know, it's all about me getting my point across and winning the argument. But is it? You may win the argument, but you lose the soul. What is the point? How do we engage somebody so that we've got a hook, so we've got them wanting to come back for more, for more conversation about who the Lord Jesus is? What do you mean? that he came to die for me. What is this thing called sin? Are we ready to engage? Can you articulate why you believe, not just what you believe? People are ready to tell you what they believe, but can they tell you the why? That's way more interesting. I'm a researcher. I'm not really interested if the project worked, yes or no. For a lot of people, that's good enough. I need to know why, because that gets to the heart of people and their thinking, and their thought process, their engagement with whatever that study was. Why? Why do you believe? And use the Scriptures to point people to God. Use the Scriptures. We need to be facile. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared to flip through Scriptures and point people because it's way more powerful to have God's Word speaking to people than to have your words speaking to people. And that is a reminder for us that we need to be ready to speak. Ready to speak about that hope that is within us. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to open your word. Lord, we have a burden for our communities and our our places that you've placed us. We thank you for this. We pray that as we move on uh, from here that uh, we would be ready to engage and ready to uh, be to give an answer for the hope that is within us uh, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, what He has done for us on the cross of Calvary, and why it has transformed us, and how it has made us completely different than the old nature that we've had. We pray that we would be ready to speak. There are so many that are headed towards a lost eternity. All the things of this world, all the distractions of conversation and all the stresses of life, they're all pointing back rather to the fact that people are actually, frankly, afraid of dying. They don't know what it all means. They don't know what death will mean. We do. We've seen it from your word. We understand. We realize that we have, uh, we have the, the solution, the hope, the assurance of the Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he gives because of his work that he has accomplished for us. We pray that we would be ready to speak about these things. Thank you again for for these believers. We pray for each and every one of them as they return to their homes, to their workplaces, to their schools, any place that they may find themselves, that you would work through their lives, that they'd be ready 
to serve you as, as servants in that capacity. We thank you again. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.